for the first Sunday of Christmas comes out of Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. After the wise men have left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and he killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Currently in the movie theaters, the big movie right now is Avatar 2, which if you're familiar with those, you know it's a whole lot of very, very intense computer-generated imagery. Now, CGI, as it's called, has been around for a long time, and there are entire branches of the movie industry that are focused on that in one form or another. And one, of course, is computer-generated animation. Uh, an animation style that's been around for a long time and with several different companies that really focus in on that, perhaps the most successful one being Pixar, a division of Disney. Now, Pixar has made many wonderful computer-generated animated movies over the years, and I'm thinking about one in particular that came out back when I was in college, so it's going back a ways, and it's called A Bug's Life. Now, it's probably right there in the title. It focuses in on insects, and in particular, ants. And in particular, particular, a specific ant known as Flick. Now, Flick, in our story, his colony of ants is terrorized. They're bullied. They're threatened by a gang of grasshoppers who force the ants to collect food for them. And if they do that, then the, the grasshoppers will leave them alone. But they're under threat that if they don't do what they're supposed to, there's going to be trouble. And anytime one of the ants gets a little bit out of line, the bullying behavior kicks in. And of course, this happens fairly early on with Flick, with our main ant. Now, there's a scene where all the grasshoppers are around and they're throwing their weight around and he stands up and he kind of mouths off just a little bit. So the main baddie grasshopper bullies him. He beats him up. And then in the scene directly after that, the grasshoppers have, have departed and they're kind of in their gang headquarters. And two of the random grasshoppers are laughing about what has happened. They, oh, you can't believe that ant was so dumb and he, he tried to stand up against us and we really put him in his place. And the main grasshopper, he kind of looks and he needs to make a point. So he grabs a grass seed and he throws it and it bounces off of one of the other grasshoppers. He says, did that hurt? No, no, boss, that didn't hurt at all. So he grabs another one and he does it again. No, that one didn't hurt at all. And then he knocks the spout off this entire big jar, this huge collection, and all of these seeds come avalanching out over top of these two grasshoppers. He says, how about now? 
And he stops and he makes the point. Those ants outnumber us 100 to 1. What's going to happen when they realize that and they all start standing up? What's at play here is the illusion of power and the way that those who hold it will do anything to hold on to it. Now, in the case of the movie, it's grasshoppers terrorizing these ants so that the ants don't realize their own power and rise up against them. But the same sort of thing happens in the real world. And it's definitely on display in what we have today, focusing in and around this guy named Herod. Now, Herod, or Herod the Great, as he was known, he was a tyrant king of Judea, or the southern part of Israel. And his history is important. Now, he came to power as a vassal king to the Roman Empire about 35 years before Jesus was born, give or take, 30 or 40 years, somewhere in that vicinity. And this guy, in many ways, was an effective leader, but he was also a tyrant, and he was also not very well-liked as we look back in history. The guy was so paranoid that people were going to undermine him and come after him that he was constantly, constantly scheming, and even going farther than that, taking steps to ensure that his power would never really be threatened. Now, he had undermined the previous ruling power, and he had married into that family. And so some of the individuals that he was worried about, some of the individuals that he was scared about were representatives of that former family. And so he took various steps. And let me tell you, this guy was paranoid beyond belief. He ordered the death of his mother-in-law. He ordered the death of one of his wives. He ordered the death of several of his own children, not to mention some extended family members as well, if he even had the inkling that these guys might pose a threat to my power. Now, this is the individual that we're talking about. He's the ruling elite in and around Jerusalem and Judea and, and Israel, the Holy Land, whatever we want to call it, at the time when Jesus is born. Now, when our story actually picks up, we're like halfway through the important story, and it's important to back up and set, give us the, the, the setting or give us the context. So when the birth of Jesus happened, a star appeared, and the wise men or the magi, they have witnessed it, and so they have traveled to the Holy Land. They have traveled to Jerusalem because they recognize the sign of a new king that must be recognized. And so where better to find the king than to go to the royal palace? So they come into the royal palace. They come before Herod the Great, and they ask him, where is the newborn king that we may worship him? Immediately, warning lights are going off in the mind of Herod. And he's like, what is going on? You mean there's a new king? Someone else is going to be a threat to my power, and he's not going to stand for it. But rather than just going on the war path initially, he gets a little bit sneaky. The first thing he does is he calls in the scribes and the experts to go through the various prophecies to see where will this, this child be born? Where will this king be born? And they discover it's Bethlehem. So then he does some talking with the wise men, and he finagles around, and he kind of finds out a time frame, and he, we find out that it's somewhere in the vicinity of, of, of a year or two since the birth of Jesus, and that's where all of this kind of comes from, why we hear about the, the death of, of babies two years and, and younger just a moment after this. But he starts to finagle all of this, and he doesn't want to tip his hand to the wise men. So he says, go and find the child. And when you find him, come and let me know so that I may worship him too, which is a load of hooey. He basically just wants to identify who this child is so he can have him killed. 
The wise men go off. They go into Bethlehem. They search around. Eventually, they find the Holy Family. They worship Jesus. They present, present their gifts. And as they are ready to depart, an angel shows up in a dream and gives them a warning. Do not go back to Herod. And so they depart by a different road, whatever that means, and they travel on home. And you know what? We've had a lot of these angelic warnings going on or angelic dreams or angelic appearances in dreams. It seems like it continues to happen. We've had Joseph given instructions in the first chapter before the birth of Jesus. And now that Jesus is around, we have the wise men who are being warned about Herod. And now we have Joseph being warned about Herod, that Herod wants to kill Jesus. So, so we hear, take the child and his mother and go into Egypt and stay there until I tell you. And so that's what they do. And now Herod realizes he's been duped. The wise men have undercut him. They have not done as they said they were going to because of this angelic dream that they've had. And so he goes on the warpath and he orders the death of these babies, these innocent babies in and around Bethlehem, two years and under. Their only crime of being born at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now this event is known as the slaughter of the innocents. And it's perhaps a shocking idea, a shocking revelation to see that this happened in and around the birth of Jesus. And it's a really, really rough thing to think about. But Herod, he is simply enacting this thing that we've talked about, this, this idea of the, 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 the illusion of power and how he sees a threat against it. Now, how often, if we look back through history, do we see events like this? Someone who's so desperate to hold on to power that they will go above and beyond, and they will do the unthinkable in order to try and hold on to it. In this case, it's, it's murdering innocent babies. And we've seen many different examples of the same type of thing, just like the grasshoppers throwing their weight around to make sure that the power will never rise up against them. Herod is doing the same thing here. Now, what's interesting about this whole situation is eventually Herod dies, actually not long after this. And then the angel shows up in a dream to Joseph again, and they're off in Egypt. And the angel says, the ones who are threatening your son is, are now gone, so come back to Israel. And, and so they do. They start heading back again, but they're warned in a dream again because Herod's kid, who's every bit as bloodthirsty as he is, is, is now ruling in the same area. So they travel up to Galilee, and they make their home there. And we hear all of this stuff. And you know what? This is actually the end of the baby narrative of Jesus when we think about it, the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel. At this point, we will then zip ahead to his adult ministry, and that's what's lying ahead of us in the weeks to come. This story is strange. It's perhaps shocking. And honestly, as we come off of the feel-good story of Christmas and the birth of Jesus, perhaps this is shocking to have so quickly on its heels. And I thought about that, and I thought about why this happens and why this is so important and why we need to hear this. And it all, think, I think, stems from the brokenness of human nature that sometimes is much more apparent than others. If nothing else, I think it's safe to say that Herod's actions and Herod's paranoia and Herod's desire to hold on to power is, uh, is relative or is telling of that flawed, selfish human nature that in one way or the other will always put our interest first. I don't know if you've ever heard the idea that that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He seems to be a perfect example of that. 
And this is why I think that monarchs are always a, a problem. It's always problematic whenever someone has so much power that they think that their way goes and that they are just right. It's never a good thing, and Herod is a perfect example. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you are, perhaps you hear this and you wonder, is there any good news in this very troublesome story? And I think perhaps the one little bit of good news is to remember that this portion is a part of the larger story. And the larger story is about how God, the divine, entered into this world as one of us, into this broken world as one of us, into this world filled with selfish, broken people as one of us. And we hear it in the earlier narrative when Joseph is told, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Whatever else was going on in the midst of all of this, God entered into a world. God dwelled among us. God is with us in the midst of all the broken junk and is still present even in the times when the illusion of power seems to be winning. We all know that in this world, things are not always great. Things do not always go well. And sometimes it seems like everything bad is what seems to win out. But the ultimate promise of the gospel is that God is present in those hard times. God is present in the times when it seems like the darkness is winning, when it seems like evil is winning, when it seems like the selfishness is winning. And God has promised that all of that does not get the last word in our stories. The promise of the gospel says that God gets the last word. And somehow, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God has overcome all of that junk even in the times when it doesn't feel like it. May we remember that in the midst of hard stuff, that God 